listening to First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. So good to see you all here in the church house on this beautiful Sunday. Some of you back from uh, Adventures. I see uh, Daryl is back today. Thank God. He'd been quarantined too long. And uh, Tina, I think, had a little quarantine going on herself. Sick with a sickness whose name shall not be mentioned. And <laughs> in the meantime, we're glad to have you all. Some of, some of our uh, staff is still quarantined uh, right now. Uh, interesting, we survived the first wave of this whole uh, mess with no trouble or drama. And then our kids went back to school for the second wave. And it's hit us a little bit harder. But we're stronger and we're going to come through it. Uh, and we are not alone. God's with us. Whatever you're facing, you are not alone. God is with you. You might as well have some hope in your soul. You say, I don't know where to start. Well, just start by practicing some hope. Just look at your biggest problem and say, I think it's going to work out. I don't know how, but I think it's going to work out. So, amen. Uh, welcome all of people joining us online. Thank you for worshiping with us today. If you're here and you have questions primarily uh, about small groups, there's a sign right up front that says small groups. Uh, one of our pastors will be by that sign after service, and we will connect you. Uh, it's easy for us to be lost in a larger gathering, but when we see smaller groups of people, we start fulfilling those scriptures like wherever two or three are gathered together in the name of Jesus that he is there in in the midst of them. All right, so this is my title, a fun title, Taking Names and Kicking Tables. See, when I said the kicking, you didn't know what I was going to say. Uh, it's like for a moment, you're like, oh, thank God. Pastor's kicking tables today. Yes, I am preaching taking names and kicking tables. And you, if you've been around church much, much at all, you immediately know that I am referring to that famous moment where during the Passover week, uh, where Jesus actually, this is the week he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He enters into the temple grounds, and he has himself. This is the original come to Jesus moment. If you've ever wondered what a come to Jesus moment is, this is the original, the original one right here where Jesus comes into the temple, and he expels all of the merchants. He uh, makes a mess of all the money-changing activity. This story is really fundamental to the, the story of Jesus, and uh, scholars will tell you it's fundamental to the nature, the ministry of Jesus. This is why all four Gospels tell this story, uh, and John, Gospel of John, mentions it twice. And so this is, this is something that they all understood was, as it were, insight. It's not just Jesus having a meltdown. It's not just Jesus, you know, having a road rage. Um, it's a point. He is making a point. There is a lesson in the story. So I want to make an appeal to all of you who are seeking to turn your heart toward the kingdom of God, to turn away from the things of this life, away from the things of this world, and know God. I want to remind you, first of all, this is what it means to be a Christian. Every day, the willing turning away from self, from flesh, from sin, from the easy path of the immorality of our lives to turn away from that and say, not that, but 
conversely, I'm trying to manifest the kingdom of God in my life, the kingdom of God in my heart. This is what it means uh, to be a Christian. So I'm going to bring you into this story. I'm going to read several passages on it, and we're going to learn from it uh, for a little while here today. Um, The week is important for you to understand in this moment. There's a certain week that is referred to as Passion Week or in the third year of ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the week uh, where he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. This happens in Jerusalem on the week of the Passover. Jesus visits the temple. This is Herod's temple. Uh, it is the period of the, a scholar would call the second temple. And he is impacted enough by what he sees that he loses his temper. Um, he, as it were, brings attention to himself. Now, most scholars will say, and you can uh, study this for yourself, most of these resources are available nowadays on the, on the internet, but they, they say this is really the straw that breaks the camel's back. Uh, The religious community was fine ignoring Jesus, debating Jesus, criticizing Jesus, and they had this kind of disapproval relationship with him. But uh, most of his conflict was with a uh, political party in the Jewish nation we think of as Pharisees. Along with Pharisees, there is a class of legal professionals under Jewish law that are either a lawyer, they represent cases before a Sanhedrin council, or a scribe, they are specialists in preserving and recording texts on parchment. These are the three roles of people who are professionals relative to uh, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, relative to the temple priests, relative to religious life as it applies to common man and politics. That's Pharisees. Jesus did not have quite as much interaction with the elite priestly class until this week. Up till now, he has existed, as it were, kind of within the sights of scribes, within the sights of um, lawyers, within the sights of Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin council, knowing he's there, not liking him, being jealous of the attention, but not really, as it were, planning his imminent demise. But on this occasion, at this moment, what Jesus does gets their attention. And all of a sudden, this is the scholarly consensus, they take action. It's almost as though they see what he did calling out the errors of the temple, and they fear what happens when the mob joins him. It's one thing for him to do it, But what if the mob joins him? Could we have another religious civil war? They've had these before in the past. Could we end up with another one group dismissing and killing and hating the other group? That's all happened in Jewish history. Um, And this really is what pushes them to make their plans to defraud Jesus. Uh, they, they, they offer fraud. They lie about Jesus. They, they really take action 
a conspiracy of murder and death because of this. Now, this moment is thematically, the theme of it is super important. This is why it's mentioned so, so often and so consistently uh, in the Gospels. And so what is the week of the Passover? The population of Jerusalem has doubled, perhaps tripled in size. Every inn, every what we would think of as a hotel, every Airbnb, <laughs> every vacation home is full and overflowing, and the poor people are camping outside the city itself, filling the, the areas around the city uh, with temporary camps in order to be a part of this annual high holy celebration, and the place is packed. If you were to walk, walk into the temple grounds itself, the first thing you would have noticed is coming into the court of the Gentiles, that it did not feel like a religious place. It felt like a bazaar. It felt like an outdoor market. That's what it would have felt like. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. Um, the layout of God's house was not an accident, and there's whole preaching and teaching series that can be done just on the layout of the tabernacle and the layout of the temple. This is not random. This is not accidental. And in God's plan, the largest space of this holy complex of buildings, shall we say, the largest place is not for the religious elite, it's not for the priesthood, it's not for the high priest and his club, his clique, his family. The largest spot in this house of God is for the Gentile. It is for the stranger. It is as though God wants to be known in a certain way, not just by people of the covenant, but by all people. Somebody say all people. This is important because it's not an accident that the court of the Gentiles is the biggest court in the house of God. It is intentional. This is how God planned it to be. Do you see? And so this is how God wants the people to know him and see him. Let me real quick just um, make a point here. God is everywhere. Yes, we call it, when we use a $5 theological word, we call it omnipresent, which is just the gathering of two different uh, words from our Latin inheritance, and we call God omnipresent, which I learned in my years in Bible school doesn't really mean uh, God is everywhere. That's how we think it means. What it means is there's nowhere God isn't. That's the kind of nerdy stuff you learn if you get formally educated in religion. And and so uh, we say God is everywhere, but watch this. I want you to see this. I want you to feel this. I want you to hear this. God does not manifest himself everywhere. God is everywhere, but he chooses places to do what? To manifest himself. And when people of God in the scripture are praying for God's presence, they're not asking God to come here because he's not here. They're asking God to manifest himself, his power, his nature, his heart. Show yourself right here, right now. Manifest yourself right here right now. 
because when God manifests himself, everybody who is a part of it, everyone who sees it, everybody who experiences it, associates God with that manifestation. You know why we want the power of God to move in our services? Is we want anybody to be able to come into here and feel the presence of God here. It's not just for church folks to enjoy the house of God. Can I have a great big amen? It's not just for saved people to say that was a good church. We want to have good church so anybody could come. Remember, in God's house, the court of the stranger and the court of the Gentile is the biggest single space that is available for anything as if God would say to all of us, I don't have a problem when strangers are here. I have a problem when strangers aren't here. I don't have a problem when sinners are here. I have a problem when sinners aren't here. This is the heart of God. God's not concerned. You see, oftentimes as we get more and more proper, uh, which is a good thing, our desire to be sanctified unto the Lord is an act of worship in our life. It's not a plan of personal salvation, as you know. It's an act of worship in our life. It's a way of exalting him, placing him on the throne. We, we turn our hearts to toward him, and we're like, less of me, help down here, more of you. Less of my temper, more of your grace. Anyone ever prayed that prayer? I just want to say, some of y'all didn't say amen, and you needed to. You ever pray that prayer, God, less of my temper and more of your grace? How about more patience and less, you know, mm, fill in the blank right here? Uh, how about that? Some of us, we need to pray that a little bit more often than we pray. What are you doing? As an act of worship, you're saying, I'm not the judge of me. There is a higher judge of me, and I'm going to acknowledge God is the judge of me. We place God on the throne, and now we know longer serve ourselves. We serve him. So the issue isn't what we think anymore. It is what does God say? This matters. This matters. I know you guys hear me talk about this, but you just have to suffer because this is so important. This is the, uh, what I, I think is often missed. When Adam and Eve fall in, fall in sin, they don't eat from the tree of sin. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of the good, of good and evil. It's like a form of idolatry. I'll decide for myself what is right, what is wrong. This is the very beginning of the whole spiritual re- rebellion you can read about in the Word of God. You see, a lot of times outsiders misunderstand this about church. What, what they, they know just about, about just enough about Reformed theology to understand some element of uh, universal depravity, which is a Calvinistic idea that everybody's all bad all the time. And it doesn't feel like that to them. They've been helped by people many times, and they hear that. They're like, that, that's, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, that's because that's viewing it as though the problem was the rebellion rather than the idolatry. Let me explain that. They're both wrong, and they're both in the story. I'm not trying to emphasize one over the other. What I'm trying to do, because rebellion is always emphasized, you've heard that a lot, I'm trying to add the idolatry component so you will understand. And so when Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is the symbolic saying, I will judge for myself what is right. I will no longer humble myself to God. And that is really a picture of modern man. That's why 
in the days of Noah, what are they doing? Eating, drinking, getting married, giving a marriage. It's not that they're out killing people. Um, They were doing that too, but that's not the problem. They're just doing life, but they have placed themselves as the judge of what is right and wrong. And so people come to God. I'm not trying to say you're all bad or you're all good. You're just people. You understand what I'm saying? You've done some good stuff. You've done some not so good stuff. Hopefully, if you're like me, you try to emphasize the good stuff and hope nobody notices the bad stuff. There's a term for this. It's called humanity. And if you say it with multiple syllables like that, it seems more proper. So I want you to see that here you have in you, you have the good, you have the bad. Now, we're speaking in terms of humanity. We're not speaking spiritually. Spiritually, there's only one who is good, do you see? Because that's an issue about our nature. When I say nature, think this, what you are capable of. You see what I'm saying? The problem with nature is not what you've done. The problem with nature is what are you capable of? And let me tell you something about me. I'm capable of a murder. I am. You mess with my, one of my kids and see what happens. I'm not as bad as some of y'all. Some of y'all is like ready to fight thinking about it. You see what I'm saying? The problem is not what I've done. It's what I am capable of. But God is all good all the time. There is no injustice in God. There is no rage in God. There is none of the out-of-control elements where you must... You see what I'm saying. Let me, let me move along. And so here you have, here you have this, this, this realization that, that we are, as it were, now judging God. God rather than humbling ourselves before God. And so in this house, this temple, you're going to have this realization of these uh, people uh, that they, they are taking this court of the Gentiles, but rather than letting it be a place of welcome for all people, um, they are going to turn it into this open market, open bazaar. Now, a couple things. Number one, this story has money in it, but it's not really about money. Jesus has no problem with money at the temple. Jesus teaches you ought to give tithe and offering to the temple. You've been blessed. It should flow through you, not to you. You should do that for the temple. In fact, Jesus takes it one further, and he observes who gives and who doesn't give. Let's be honest. Money is its own trial, and that's true for all of us. I know people who they love church rules, but if you check the tithing record, they don't support the church. Um, that That's real. So, So it is with all of you. So it is with all of us. This is real temptation. You have to decide. And for some people, it's a hard temptation. It's worse than that. It's not just you. Money is a temptation for the ministry too. There's been a lot of ministries that have been destroyed by, by money. And I don't enjoy giving any more than anybody else would. Now, it's fun to have and give so it doesn't hurt. That's fun. That ain't given. I know it is, but you know what I'm saying. What really is given is when it affects your lifestyle, do you see? Now we're talking about sacrifice. So I'm, I'm not, money reveals our heart. I, I want you to understand money is in the story, but it's not about money. Money's like everything else. It needs to be submitted unto God. We need to humble ourselves. We need to do things right. Can I have a big amen? All right, moving along. Money's in the story. It's not about money. And so here is this temple ground, and here is this open bazaar, and Jesus is going to walk into this place, packed out, perhaps three to 400,000 uh, pilgrims there. Let me read John uh, chapter number 2, verse number 13. And making a whip of cords, 
he drove them, Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, notice that, sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what's fascinating about this is Jesus seems to have no problem with trade. In his stories, he tells, in his teaching stories, he talks about trade. In his teaching stories, he talks about money. He doesn't seem to have a problem with trade. He doesn't seem to have a problem with um, money. Furthermore, Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with capitalism. There is capitalism in the teaching illustrations of Jesus Christ. Watch, stay with me. And so it's not about trade. Now, let's read Matthew 21, verse number 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple over through the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So my question is this. We've read two passages. There are more. There's multiple passages on this story. We read two. We understand what's happening. The place is packed out. Uh, pilgrims have come from all over. They don't want to drive cattle or lamb, uh, a lamb or a cattle, whatever, all the way across the country. It's very difficult. Some of them, many of them came by ship and then journeyed up into the mountains of Jerusalem. Uh, they want to get there and buy it there. Um, and so they go there, and there's places right in the temple they can buy it. So, very busy. Jesus walks into where? Where is this set up? Uh, well, it's set up in the largest open area of the temple, which is what? The court of the Gentiles. Stay with me. This is where it's set up. There's money changers. There is literally uh, yards of pinned animals where you can buy a sacrifice. This makes Jesus angry. Why so angry, Jesus? Well, it makes him this angry. He looks around for some ropes, and he grabs up some ropes, and he kind of loops them in his hand until he has a whip of ropes. Now, this is pretty far out. Uh, the only time I've ever seen this is when my wife does it to me on a regular basis, but um, <laughs> he gets these rope, ropes, and he walks up, and he begins driving uh, beasts out of the temple. Well, if you start moving animals, animals will trample all over you. How many of you know this is true? And uh, you start moving, they will just go right through the crowd. So this creates this stampede-like environment. He's driving them out. And when people try to come try to stop him, he does not stop. And I don't know if he hits people. I know he drives people. But there is this stampede-like exodus. And while he's going, uh, he goes by the table of the money changers, and he flips them. Uh, what are you doing, Jesus? I'm going to tell you what he's doing in the South. He's taking names and kicking tables. That's exactly what he is doing. He is not happy about what they have done with God's house. He is not happy. You see, remember, he is everywhere, but he does not manifest himself everywhere. But wherever he is manifest, it speaks to who he is, and God cares how you represent him. Amen. It matters the attitude with which you represent him. 
And this is what has pushed this man who even his enemies say is meek and uh, kind, this man in whom there is no fault, thinking of what it means for the people who come to see the heart of God. And this is what they see. This is what they think God's heart is about. And they, they, he takes this whip and he drives the cattle out, drives the merchants out, flips over the money changers. God cares about how we represent him. This is happening in the court of the Gentiles, but they don't have any problem with Gentiles being there. Why? They have created a culture where the stranger is not welcome. Just before this, one of the great civil wars between the religious elites of uh, Israel uh, was between two different schools uh, that were famous at the time, one school, the school of Hillel, and one school, the school of Shimei. Uh, Shimei was the progressive, Hillel was the conservative, and the fight was over whether or not the Jewish person could have anything to do with the Gentile. And uh, the school of Hillel wanted it to be clear that if you were an observant Jew, you could not even have friends over your house if they were Gentiles. You couldn't do business with them. You had no interaction with them at all. The school of Shimei said, now, wait a minute. This is a, a new conservatism that you've, got, you've brought into, ba- into this, this, this faith, and it's really not about this faith. It's about how much you hate Rome. That's what's going on here. And you can't do anything about Rome, so you're taking it out on all the Gentiles. This is the battle between the two. They have created an environment where there is no strangers that would ever visit the house of God. And yet that's the biggest peace that God has declared for his house. And they're not going to have any problem if you won't even look at them, which they wouldn't, if you won't do business with them, if you won't eat with them, honey, they are not coming to church with you. Do you see what I'm saying? They have created this environment of the stranger. And here, they have all of this room that God said was supposed to be a place of prayer for all people. He's quoting Isaiah when he says that, where the house of God is for all nations. And he sets aside this place, and they say, oh, we're not using it for that. We'll just use it for the convenience of the saved people. Do you see what's happening here? What? Jesus, we're answering the question, why are you so mad? Why are you taking names and kicking tables? This is why he's so mad. This was supposed to be the biggest part of my house, and it was to show anybody that there's always room for you. You don't have to be a child of Abraham to have a place for you here in this house. There's room for you in this house. Jesus, what are you so angry about? Well, two themes are immediately, immediately notable to any fair student of the scripture, any fair student of the text. And that is the first thing that you see happening here that always makes God angry is exploitation. You're seeing exploitation. I will, I will explain. Um, oftentimes this passage is used when a preacher uh, preaches about judgment. I know I have referenced it that way several, several times. It's not uncommon. But when I was preparing for this message, I really I thought about it. And to be honest, this, this really isn't judgment. Nobody got killed. <laughs> Fire didn't fall on anybody. 
um, let's not judge Jesus too harshly. Now, this is what you call, you know, a good talking to right here. <laughs> this is not anybody getting killed. Uh, we should not think that all that's going to happen when judgment is we get run out of the church. No. Uh, judgment's a whole different animal, and all of us will give an account, and we will be... Those of us who are covered in the blood will be passed over by judgment. And can I have a big amen? The first thing is exploitation. People are being exploited in this moment, in this place. God cares about people who doesn't, don't have the strength to fight for themselves. God cares a lot about people who don't have the strength to care for themselves. In fact, he cares about them so much that they are truly the recurrent theme of his self-proclaimed ministry. It's not my opinion, not your opinion. No need to fight about it. Just try reading the scripture. It is a consistent theme of Jesus' ministry. Watch this. Isaiah 61, verse number 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Really? Who cares about the poor? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Really? Who cares about losers like that? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are abound. Really? Nobody cares about society's losers. To proclaim the year of God's favor. Favor to who? Favor to all of these people who have been exploited, who did not have the strength to fight for themselves, who did not have the ability to stand in their own stead. It is the Lord's favor upon them, and God's going to make straight these broken paths. Vengeance is coming not simply upon sin, but upon in judgment, uh, injustice, I should say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Who cares about the sad folks? They've been depressed for years. Just ignore them. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Mourning in the time they were very, they would take heaps of ashes and put on their on their heads. God swaps you your sadness for his joy, to give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, now Jesus gives, in, when he stands up in the synagogue and quotes this, um, they, 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 he gives this image, Isaiah, I should say, gives this image of strength, oaks of righteousness. These weak people have made strong. So Jesus stands up on in the house of God, and he quotes from this, and he says all these things with one exception. He stops the quote at to proclaim the year of the Lord. He does not read in the day of vengeance of our God, which was a huge disappointment to all the religious folks who wanted God to come and destroy Rome. But God's not mad about the oppression of one elite upon another elite. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't seem to be super interested in that. What God is interested in is oppression of the elite upon people who have no ability to stand in their own stead. Why are we seeing exploitation? One of the things I asked you to notice when we read the text together was how uh, both times that it was mentioned that the writer refers to selling pigeons or, or doves, and um, it, it's in, mentioned several times in several passages, I should say. Uh, it's mentioned selling pigeons or doves. Why? Why is that particularly mentioned? Because in the Levitical tradition, 
in the original implementations of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, doves were not sold. They were provided. And so there was a provision for the poor under the law of Moses, which went like this. If you could not afford a sacrifice, you could come, and this house will provide a sacrifice for you. Do you see that image? And so in the temple system, it was intended and it was meant for the temple to provide these doves. But someone thought to themselves, hmm, this is a great business opportunity. Let's exploit the poor. Let's don't help the poor. Let's exploit them. And it's for a good cause, etc., etc. This is exploitation. Further, it gets worse than that. It is also a story of money. It's not about money, but money is a tool that is used in, in the story. For example, there were a coinage of the Roman Empire. Almost all uh, business in the Roman Empire was done with Roman coin. When Jesus is, uh, they try to trap him, and he asks for them to bring him a coin. They bring him a coin, and he asks this question. You will remember whose image is on the coin. And what do they say? Caesar's. And what does he famously say? He says, duh, give to God what is God's, and Caesar's what is Caesar's. The duh is only in the NJE version, just so you know. <laughs> and so uh, he, he speaks to the coin of the realm, but the temple decided they would not accept any coin except a shekel that was linked to Jewish history. They won't accept it. Now, you must ask yourself the question, uh, is this a holy coin? Is this a coin that is just used for spiritual things? No. It's used for business too. It's just most people don't have shekels. And so the temple thinks to themselves, huh, interesting business idea. We will require you to only pay the, de the dues, the tax, etc., in shekels. They had their own cryptocurrency. <laughs> it was awesome. It wasn't called Bitcoin. It was called Worship Coin. And uh, they would require you to only have shekels. Well, people don't have shekels. I mean, what do they have? They have the Roman coin. And so the temple would have an exchange for them, and they would make a profit. This is a great business opportunity. You get a percentage on everything. Where do I sign up? So I want you to see this is the picture of exploitation. They are forcing a rule, this extra biblical rule, upon people in order to benefit. And I'm sure they said, well, it's traced back to Solomon, and it's honorable in all regards, and how awesome it is. But the point is, it worked out in their favor. Don't you like it when that happens? I liked it when that happens, but then I got married, and it stopped working out in my favor. Uh, <laughs> actually, it did. You should all, anyway, I'm not going to pick on you anymore. It did work out in my favor, didn't it? So, um, uh, moving along. And so, <laughs> and so uh, they have this, this game of exploitation. They get everybody through currency, and they get the poor through selling doves. Now, this flies in the very face of the heart of God, and God cares about how you represent him. God carries, God cares about the spirit with which you carry around your public Christianity. 
God cares about the image you project into a world that's full of Gentiles, full of unbelievers. That's not a good excuse for you to make enemies in the name of God. You can be strong without being ugly about it. Meek is not weak. All right, let me move along. And so uh, Jesus shows how much he cares about whether or not his people are about exalting the broken, uh, helping the lowly, assisting the poor, or are we top-down oppressing and in some way exploiting? This is a theme that will recur consistently in the heart of God and in the words of Jesus. Let me read Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus uh, said... uh, you you have clothed me, you have helped me, you have been there in my need. And they say to him, uh, we, we never helped you. Uh, what are you talking about? And he says this, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. Somebody say stranger. The biggest hot place in the house of God is set aside for strangers, set aside for outsiders. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. They're like, what in the world are you talking about? And Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, who? The poor, the oppressed, the lowly, the broken. Whenever you do uh, to one of the least of these, and then he calls these oppressed, these broken brothers and sisters of mine. This is the words of Jesus. When you did that, you did that for me. As a church, we don't want this just to have a Christian label. We want to manifest the heart of God in a way that he is proud to say um, this is his house. And the largest part of our heart should be set aside for the spiritual stranger. The largest part of our church's compassion. I know I'm speaking kind of in a preacherly way when I say this, but I want you to understand the image involved and the teaching that's in the, in the picture. The largest part is for the stranger and the Gentile. God's not mad when sinners are there. He's mad when sinners aren't there. God's not mad when Gentiles are there. He's mad when Gentiles aren't there. It matters how the nations around view him. And when his people become part of the systems of oppression, then the world looks at the church and they can't see a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. It looks like a nonstop wall of trouble. We have to care about this. We have to pray about this. I don't know what it means in your specific life. You are gifted. You are placed. You are empowered. God is with you. You need to pray about what that means for you. How do I keep the uh, court, as it were, of the Gentiles available for the stranger? How do I keep my heart open to the outsider? How do I help? How do I give? As a church, we try, of course, like all nonprofit organizations, uh, we have the same kind of constraints and limits that that anyone would have, and the need is always greater uh, than our ability. Uh, And oftentimes, full disclosure, even after we have done something, done our best, uh, 
you have to focus on what you were able to do because if you leave and you think about everything you couldn't do, you feel like you're defeated before you, you even start. You look at the five loaves and two fishes, and then you look at the 5,000, and you see that you're going to need God to get involved to feed them. Isn't it interesting, and haven't you ever thought that God was never moved for, with compassion for the disciples, but he was always moved with compassion for the crowds? Isn't that interesting? He loved them enough to show them uh, that it's not always easy and you got to be strong. But the crowds, those strangers, those outsiders, he says, we can't send these poor darlings home hungry. We have to take care of them. See the court of the Gentiles in the heart of God and see he's moved with compassion for them. One of the things our church has done trying to help, trying to bless, uh, we've done most recently is our back to school uh, backpack giveaway that's done as part of one of our church ministries with called Prosper University, which just started back this past Wednesday night here at the church, mentoring uh, kids from all around uh, the church neighborhood. So it's a wonderful thing. Many of you serve in that. Um, we gave away hundreds of backpacks filled until they were heavy with school supplies. We spent thousands of dollars. We had cars come through for hours lined up. We prayed over every car. Many of you were a part of that or you saw the video. You cast your bread on the waters and uh, you're glad to do it because this house is going to have a very large court of the Gentiles in it. <laughs> and we're, gonna, we're not going to be, if the Lord will help us, uh, we're not going to be part of the systems that are top-down exploitive. A few days ago, I received... <laughs> A few days ago, I received this letter um, from a young lady who lives um, near, near, uh, not too far from the church, and her name is Kaylee. And she, with her parents, came through this line, and she got a backpack and uh, all the stuff that was given away and, and was prayed over. And she, she wrote me this letter, and it came in the mail, and I want to share it with all of you because this is simple stuff like this. Um, this is the, the, the uh, forgive me for saying it this way, but I, I truly believe in some way this manifests and reveals the heart of God. And I want you to see that. So Kaylee writes, Dear First Church, she doesn't know anybody here. She just sits down and writes this little letter. Thank you for all the back-to-school items. You saved all the wonderful family's money that came. Um, oh, thank, uh, uh, I read that wrong. Thank you for all the back-to-school items, period. You saved all the wonderful family's money that came. She says, I'm 11 years old. I'm going to middle school, and I'm so excited. Excited. Sincerely, Kaylee. Oh, wow. Now, let's be honest with you. On one level, any of us can look at this and say, oh, it's just people, you know, they're just, they, uh, we, you understand what I'm saying? Any of us can be cynical without much effort. Any of us can be cynical. Other of us can be slightly superior, like, well, we don't even know if they repented of their sins. Uh, others of us can be indifferent. Others of us can be callous. But this is what I know. In the heart of God, there's a very big piece where he says, this is for the outsider. This is for the stranger. There are 
historic norms that are broken in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Don't have time to go into it, but you could Google this and study it on your own. Uh, five different categories of people where Jesus broke the historic norms and included them from children and women and uh, uh, Samaritans in a Jewish culture and on and on. We must have a large arena of the heart of God that uh, we don't feel with our needs, but as it were, we rejoice when the lowliest person turns their heart toward God and says, I want to know him. And so I want to show you the second picture that is here. The first picture was exploitation. And that is you see people who are being taken advantage of, uh, whether it's the way they change money with an artificial rule where you can only use a shekel and the, tump and, and the temple gets a, a kickback from it, or whether it is charging the poorest people for doves uh, when it is part of tradition of the Levitical inheritance for those to be provided for the tremendously, tremendously poor uh, people. Uh, the second thing you see, so the first is ex exploitation. The second one you see is also obvious, and that is exclusion. You see this culture of exclusion, and Jesus is upset about this, and this is what he calls out. This is what he identifies. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There's various and other passages. He actually quotes that part of the passage. Isaiah refers to the temple in the time of the Messiah. He is going to build a temple that is not simply closed in with an exclusionary program where only uh, the elite or only the tribal or only uh, the right, uh, right background are accepted. It is going to be an open uh, arena of spiritual opportunity. And Jesus rebukes them when they ask him, Jesus, why are you angry? First, he says, uh, den of thieves. It was or first, he says, it was supposed to be a place of worship. You've turned it into a marketplace. Secondly, it was supposed to be a house of worship, a house of prayer, I should say. You've turned it into a den of thieves. One is exploitation, and he's not against capitalism. Read his parables. He's not against money. Read his parables. But when you use it to exploit the weakest people, it makes God mad because he cares how he looks when you carry him around. The second is exclusion. Why, as I mentioned before, is there no Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles? Because the Jewish people in their anger and their political rage at what has been done to them through Rome, they, as it were, cope with it by hating everybody. And this is the cultural religious moment into which Jesus comes and he counteracts that and says this place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. I want you to see this. Why did they put the market in the court of the Gentiles? 
Why did they set up the money-changing tables in the court of the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles weren't using them anyway. And it was just so convenient for the Jews to have money-changers there and to have herds there to buy sacrifice animals from. It was just so stinking convenient that who cares if there's room for the stranger at God's house? Do you see what has happened? And God can't take it. He can't take it. And this meek and mild person of tremendous strength takes a cord of ropes and he begins to drive them out. And he says, of the court of the Gentiles, this was supposed to be a place of worship. Who worships in the court of the Gentiles? The stranger do. The Gentile does. This was supposed to be a house of prayer. Who prays in the court of the Gentile? The stranger does. The Gentile. But you've taken my place for the outsider and you've turned it into your place for convenience. That is how you make Jesus mad enough to take names and kick tables. We have to remember God has a heart for everybody. God would that none would perish. And however much you want your loved one to be saved, God wants them to be saved more. And however much you want your friends to be blessed and included, God wants to bless them and God wants to include them more. Am I preaching to anybody here today? God wants your hands to be hands of blessings. God wants your hands to be hands of healing. God wants your place, the temple. What? Know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? The temple that is you to have a great big part of your heart that's set aside for people who don't know how to clap on the one and on the three, or on the two and the four and pat their foot on the one, the three. If you need a lesson in clan happen, on clan hand clapping, uh, you pat on the one and you clap on the two like that. Oh yeah. Break it down. Right. If you get it opposite... That's wrong. You don't know backbeat. And if you're going to be in this house, you need to know backbeat. (laughs) Can I get a witness from the worship department? You need to take a large part of your heart and set it aside for people who don't know how to say amen real loud in the church. And when they, you do it, they look around like, you. oh, I didn't know they all did that. You need to take a large part of your heart and set it aside for people who are a hot mess. People who have had everything go wrong to them. They didn't, weren't raised by organized parents like you were. They never had a good chance to go to a great school like some of us did. And this church is people, has people in it, more than a handful of people, who you came up on the wrong side of the tracks. You came up with trouble. You didn't get all of that break to easy climb into the middle class, shall we say. But God loved you. Not everyone in your neighborhood loved you, but God loved you. Some of you don't have the background and the opportunity, but look at you, serving God, faithful. God has a big heart, yes, and a big part of it is set aside for people who look around and are like, I don't, do I clap now? Do I clap now? Huh, I'll sit back down. Oh my God, did you hear how loud they said amen? Oh my Lord, I'm a nervous wreck. Outsiders, strangers, God says, let's take a big part of this place and let's say this is for you. We're glad you're here. Exclusion, however, had become the order of the day and Jesus came to remove exclusion. And it's actually more than just the court of the Gentiles. I want you to see this as my musicians come. 
It's actually more than that because Jesus came not just to end the exclusion of Jew from Gentile. He is going to break down the middle walls of partition that are in his house. A quick lesson, the largest part of the temple is the court of the Gentiles. You would come into two other courts. One of them was the court of the women and one of them was the court of the men. And beyond that was just where ministering officials, the ministry class, shall we say, the Levitical priesthood would go. But the, the division in the temple is first the stranger, the outsider, then men and women, and then finally the arena where the manifestation of God is in the temple. Why, God, are you separated from the people, even the priesthood? Why are you behind this veil of the temple? So he might cover all of our sins. We are separated because of sin and rebellion. But Christ is going to be the Passover lamb. So there's no need anymore for separation from the Shekinah. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, if you've been around church much, you know what happened. The veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. And now you can trust the holiest of the holy with the lowest of the low and the sinfulness of the sinners. Why? Because the Passover lamb has been offered and justice no longer sees you and all your background. Justice sees a perfect lamb of God. God wants to end exclusion. And he's going to end first the exclusion of Jew and Gentile. Let me read from, and I'm almost done, Ephesians 2, verse number 14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups. What two groups? Jew and Gentile. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What are he talking about? He's talking about the inner walls of the tabernacle and the inner walls of the temple. The tabernacle being the first implementation that is not a fixed structure and the temple being the later implementations, uh, first temple, second temple, that have interior walls of dividing Jew from Gentile, men from women, uh, people from ministry, all of them from Shekinah. All of these middle walls are removed. So Jesus has made the two groups of Jew and Gentile into one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, what body is that? The church. And in one body, to recreate both of them to God, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility or you could also say their separation. So in this house, there's not inner walls of separation where we classify people by our perception of how good they are. That's, 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 that's always flawed. Why? Because we don't know their hearts anyway. And even, it's natural for us to try to have a systematic theology. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. But I want you to be aware of the errors of that. God is not a salvation algorithm. God's not a salvation formula. God's not a spreadsheet. You need to try to know Him. You need to start with a, a personal relationship with Him. You need to have a prayer life. 
when we turn a scripture into systematic theology, we're not creating an algorithm of soteriology. So soteriology is a fancy word for the theology of salvation. All right, I've given you a $5 word. Use that on your children as soon as possible so they'll look at you like, what? I want you to see that God is, why do you think there's two stories like this in the Bible? The first story, the thief on the cross. What does he do? Just remember me. He makes a start. He doesn't make an ending. All he does is make a start. The point of that is we start a process of salvation in our life by turning toward God. That's why we say salvation begins when you turn your heart toward God, you turn away from the world. It begins there. It does not end there. Neither does it end on the day of Pentecost. It is an ongoing relationship, and you need to make a commitment to that relationship because our truth is not systematic theology. Our truth is Jesus Christ. Why does this matter? Well, the risk is a day would come, and we get to judgment, and we stand before God, and we give credentials, and God was not looking for credentials. And we say, I've got this degree. I held this title. I've been ahead of every ministry except ladies' ministry. I've been in youth. I've been a preacher. I've read the Bible 17 times. I have a degree in religious studies. These are my credentials. And what does God say? I didn't know you. You need to commit to knowing his heart. How do you know his heart? You pursue him. And you find out that he is closer than you realized he was. And he's knocking on your heart door. And if you ask him, he begins to answer you. Conviction begins to work in your life. You begin to feel the Spirit saying, not this, not this. That's, that's not the way. Think about this over here. And as you start correcting, and as you start turning, and as you start what? Putting God on the throne and humbling yourself. You quit judging God. You let God start judging you. You start to feel like you know his heart. You start to feel like you know his ways. And so uh, he comes and he ends exclusion. These two great uh, provocative things that Jesus saw in the temple. First, exploitation, and it drove him crazy. Second, exclusion, and it drove him crazy. And he, in this famous moment of righteous anger, starts, if you'll allow me to have fun with it, taking names and kicking tables. And so what we're going to do here today is as a church, we're going to make sure that we're not just asking God to manifest his goodness upon us. We're going to make sure that our heart reflects his heart. Do you see? Stand with me all across this house. I want to see spiritual potential in the biggest sinners I come across. I don't want to just see sin. Is that fair? I want to see spiritual potential in them. I want to love them if God would help me with a divine sourced love. You see, I don't have that kind of love in me. I have a lot of impatience and grumpiness in me. But there is a source of love that is in God. And through His great work that is manifest first at Calvary and then in the changed hearts of people who serve Him, we have this opportunity to have a divinely sourced love where if it was just me, I wouldn't speak to you again. But God's been working on me and I need mercy. So it's my worship and honor to give you mercy. Do you see? We, this house, is going to be a house of prayer and worship for all people.
people. This house is going to be a place where we get out of the business of trying to judge who's doing good and who's not doing good. Chances are you wouldn't know if they told you. Why? They probably don't know how good they are doing themselves. The heart is desperately wicked and few can know it. But this is what you're going to do. Will you do this with me? You begin to speak faith over everybody's life. I believe God has something great for you. I believe today can be a new day. You are made to live better than the way you've been living. God didn't design you for the mess you've got yourself into. God has better things for you. Oh, come on, somebody. Am I preaching in the right church? God has great things in you. And this is what I want to challenge all of you to do here today. I want you to look at your world like a missionary would. And I want you to look around and I want you to have the hope that your world needs. They need hope. A lot of them don't have it. You need to have enough hope for them and you. Is that fair? They need faith. A lot of them don't have it. My challenge for you, if you will accept it, is could you try to have enough faith for you and them? And you start speaking faith into their life. Start talking them out of their hesitancy to come to church. Start encouraging them that God has wonderful change around the corner of their life. They're not going to be stuck where they are forever. Oh, come on, somebody. God, I want to manifest your heart to my world. I want to speak for this congregation, and we want to show your great love to the community in which you have placed us. Lord Jesus, let your anointing flow through us. Let your spiritual be a your spirit be strength within us. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many here today will make a commitment that you're turning your heart toward God? You're turning your heart toward God. Thank you, everybody who's raising their hand. I do this because I want you to make a start today. Every Sunday, I want to make you make a start. Would you right now, just in this moment of quiet, would you make this commitment to God? God, I'm turning your way this week. I'm going to be more spiritual this week than I was last week. Lord Jesus, I, I'm, I'm turning my heart, this carnal heart, I'm turning it towards you. I'm repenting of my way. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my lusts. Forgive me of my pride, that, that killer in our life, pride. Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive us of that. We turn our hearts toward you. I pray you would be with everyone here today who has made this, this commitment with their hand and with their voice. They've made a commitment to make this week about turning to you. Lord Jesus, let them feel the nearness of your spirit. Don't let them go through the same old, same old of their uh, habits, but let them discover the spiritual passion that is underneath all of spiritual life. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're hungry for you minister to your people in Jesus name we pray amen one more prayer request how many of you have a specific need in your life that you would like to represent in faith for yourself or for someone else would you represent that need if you can name a name a specific name I want you to raise your hand right now you can name a specific name that's a good number of us all right I want you to be the ambassador for that name you just you just had come to your mind let's pray for the miraculous uh, in our communities in our neighborhoods oh God we're bringing names to you right now people who are sick we're naming it and we are being specific in our faith we have people who need healing and they need strength they need encouragement I'm praying for families you know who I'm referring to right now Lord Jesus that are going through a tremendous trial of their life and Lord God if you don't fight on their behalf I fear for their their their, their survival but God I know 
you can come in like a flood. You can raise up a banner against the enemy in their life. Lord, I'm praying for strength to them. I'm praying that they would have the character and the strength of will to overcome the risks of this moment. In Jesus' name, we're praying specifically, Lord, because we're looking for a witness. We're looking for a testimony. We're activating real faith. We're looking to see how you will work among your people. In Jesus' name, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. If you're here and you're not connected in our church and you're just a part of Sunday worship, I want to encourage you to make that connection. There'll be uh, somebody out by the first, by the small group signs as you're dismissed. Uh, find out how to f- get information on the small groups from them. We want to connect you. It's not enough for us to worship, not knowing each other. We want to remove the middle walls of separation between us and get to know one another. Also, if you have a specific need in your life, we have pastors who will pray for you right now. I'll be down here in the front. If you'd like to be anointed with oil, feel free to step out. We will do that. If you want to remain where you are, we understand the times and we understand the concern. We're not going to fight it. We're just going to work with what we've got. Don't slip away when you feel like you should be anointed with oil and prayed over in the name of Jesus. Right now, our worship team is going to take us deeper into worship. Before you rush away, take a moment and stand in his presence and let the praise and the worship flow over you and cleanse your heart and fill you with strength right now in Jesus' name. God bless you all. We love you. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.